0: good morning everyone this lent as a church we are taking a look at virtues the church season of lent which is the 40 days before easter is often marked by talk of repentance and disciplines of abstinence giving up of chocolate or alcohol gluten or maybe facebook many of the things that we give up for lent would traditionally be referred to as vices They're bad moral habits, negative moral habits, like how you may eat Girl Scout cookies late at night every night or have the tendency to drink too much on Friday night or stare at your cell phone screen for an hour before going to bed. These are vices. They're bad habits. And so this Lenten season as a church, we're looking at virtues, which are good moral habits. Virtues are character habits that develop over time as we do the hard work of rightly ordering our love over and over again. Developing virtues requires thought and effort, while developing vices, as we all know, requires just coasting to neutral. It's quite easy to do, and so as we think and pray about virtues this Lenten season, we'll be thinking about our character— about being Christ-like, and about who we are, not just about being super-disciplined, impressive people, but about what our character is. So far this Lenten season, we've looked at the virtues of kindness and humility, and this morning we're going to look at the virtue of indifference. So we're going to meditate on a passage from the Gospel of Luke, so please turn with me in your pew Bibles, your bulletins, or just listen while I read from Luke 9, verses 57 to 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, be present with us this morning through your spirit. Convict us of our sin through your word and draw us closer to you through the love, kindness, and mercy that we see in the face of your son. Speak to us, we are listening. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. If you've ever watched the Summer Olympics and seen Steeplechase come on, you're in for a real treat. I'm probably one of the only people here that would enjoy the normal distance running events where they just run lap after lap after lap and nothing changes, but Steeplechase adds a few twists. You take a normal running race, one that's 3,000 meters long, almost two miles, And you throw in four barriers and a bunch of water. So think four small fences and a tiny lake. And that's what they have to go around every time they run a lap around that track. The last few laps are especially interesting because as people get more and more tired, uh, it seems less and less likely that they're going to make it over those barriers. And if you know Pastor Aaron and Pastor Dan, you know that they love fail videos. So I would not be surprised at all if they've watched steeplechase fail videos before. So asking how this race came about is a reasonable inquiry. And it's all in the name, steeplechase. So in the mid-1700s, some competitive people in Ireland got together and they pointed to the steeple of a church some miles away and said something to the effect of, race you there. The sport of steeplechase was born. Those first individuals raced their horses through ponds, over fences and streams, through mud, and ultimately, whoever got to the steeple first was the victor. Since that first steeplechase race on horses, people asked, why not do this on foot? Coincidentally, that's how a lot of long, hard-running races start. And more recently, people even decided, why not do this on bikes? But at the core of steeplechase is a really simple goal. There's a steeple really far away... And your goal is to just get there. You have to be indifferent to anything that comes in your way. And the point is that there are going to be things in your way. The point is that there are obstacles. The point is that there are things you will have to jump over and crawl under and go around. But the goal is always the same, to get to the steeple. It's all about the end goal. And in fact, the more indifferent you are to what you have to go through to get there, the better a steeplechase athlete you are. The Gospel of Luke can be divided into three main sections. You have the first nine chapters of Luke, which are Jesus' life in Galilee, where he grew up, the start of his ministry. The next ten chapters, nine through nineteen, are all about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. This is the majority of the book. It's Jesus, essentially homeless, wandering down the road on his way to Jerusalem, He preaches and he teaches as he goes, he gains new followers, and he loses some old ones as well. And then those final five chapters of the book are all about Jesus' final week of his life in Jerusalem. So we pick up our story this morning in chapter 9, verse 57, but before we begin there, six verses prior in verse 51, it's important to note it says, "...when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem." So we're beginning right at the start of this second major portion of Luke, the start of Jesus' focus on one thing and one thing alone, going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. And I imagine Jesus' mentality must have been at least somewhat like those first steeplechase races. Think about Jerusalem up on a hill and Jesus looking at Jerusalem and going, that is where I am headed. Like a steeple in a far-off town, he would go up and over and through whatever came in between him and that goal, indifferent to the obstacles, of which there would be many, indifferent to comfort, to security, to family, to acceptance, to power, and to being loved by the world. So this morning, we're going to look at three brief interactions that Jesus has with different people as he's going on his journey. So our passage picks up as Jesus begins his journey and the text tells us in verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. It's a bold promise from a totally unidentified stranger. I will follow you wherever you go. We learn nothing about the identity of this person, just that they want to follow Jesus. And Jesus' response is as remarkable as it is unsettling. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What more could Jesus have wanted than someone to say he would follow them wherever he goes? What more could he have been expecting? It sounds to me like exactly what every teacher and rabbi would have wanted in the ancient Near East, a follower who would follow them wherever They go. Yet it's in Jesus' cryptic response that we get a glimpse of his purpose. One commentator points immediately the issue with this statement, and it's that the disciple doesn't really know what follow means. He doesn't really understand that follow means the Garden of Gethsemane, follow means Golgotha, follow means the tomb. They don't understand the nature of this particular teacher and the nature of what it would be like to follow them. It would mean forsaking comfort and security. It would mean forsaking the standard sense of home and being a sojourner in the world just like Jesus is. If you're anything like me, you've said multiple times throughout your life to God, I'll do this, and I'll do that, (laughs) only to come up really, really short over and over again. We're often, like little kids, simply incapable of doing what we promise to do. And we fall short and we come running back to Jesus. And that's what our confession time is about, coming back and going, I'm sorry. And part of the beauty of this first interaction Jesus has is that Jesus doesn't rebuke this individual for promising such a grand thing. Jesus doesn't say, you should never promise that because you'll never do it. Instead, Jesus simply replies, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus' critique isn't of the disciples' desire and urge to follow Jesus, but instead, Jesus tries to reorient reorient this person to what it would actually look like to follow Jesus. To follow him would require a certain level of indifference to comfort and security, a certain level of indifference to home. Jesus compares himself to a fox and to a bird, animals that have no real sense of home. And yet he says, even compared to them, they have nests and they have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay their head. Now this doesn't mean that as Christians we don't have a house or a yard, a school or a library. But what it does mean is that all those things are secondary to following Jesus. That the nature of following Jesus means that the world, this world is not our true home. And that we're following someone who spent most of his life, much of his life, wandering. He's saying that relationship with him is more important than having a big house. It's more important than having a flush savings account or a million vacation hours. And so where might Jesus be asking us this morning to sacrifice some of those things for the sake of him and for the sake of his church and his kingdom? Seemingly immediately, Jesus turns to another individual who is following with him and says, follow me. The man responds, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Burying one's father was regarded by many Jews at the time as the most holy and binding duty of a son. Many rabbinical sources identify honor your father and mother as the most important command for a Jewish person besides Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and with all your strength. So there are 613 commands in the Old Testament, and this command is the second most important surely this act, this essential act of love, honor, and respect would be permitted before they went and followed Jesus. This wasn't a trivial excuse. It was the opposite of a trivial excuse. It was the most serious thing possible in their day. And so sit with this for a moment, that this person comes to Jesus and simply says, I want to go take care of my dying parent. I want to go bury my dying father. And Jesus' response is, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. This is one of those times that happens sometimes in the New Testament where Jesus says some things and you go, I wish you didn't say that, Jesus. I can just picture their jaws dropping and this person being so upset. All they wanted to do was bury their father. All they wanted to do was go home and be with a dying parent. We don't know how soon. The text isn't clear about if the parent had already died or if they would die soon. But what the text is clear about is that Jesus puts himself in a place of primacy over this. So when you think about your relationship with God... When you think about wanting to feel closer to him, or wanting him to bless you more, or fix your problems, or any number of things, do you ever think about following him? As in, do you think about Jesus, who is a real human person in the same way that I'm a real human person right in front of you, Jesus has hair and nails and teeth and muscles, do you ever think about that Jesus walking down the road and you following him? Do you ever think about all the rules and commands in scripture as guards and rumble strips keeping you aheaded down the road following this man, Jesus? Do you ever think about the life that God has given you with a particular school, job, spouse, parents, siblings, roommates, friends as a road on which you can follow Jesus? if we begin to think about following Jesus in this light, using the life we've been given to love God, love our neighbor, and love him, what are the things for which we often want to say, let me first do this? Let me first do that. What are the things that take primacy in our life that instead of wanting to follow this person, Jesus, we just want to take care of those things? What Jesus is shockingly saying here is that there is nothing that is more important than following Him. And so, whether you've called yourself a Christian since you were four years old, or you've never used that label, or you're somewhere in between, God is asking you this morning through His Word here, what are you following? What are you chasing after in lieu of Jesus? And would you be willing to give up some of those things things to follow him instead? Would we be willing to be indifferent to anything and everything else compared to following Jesus? And are we willing to trust that following him down his road might be better than following our careers, following our relationships, following our comfort, or even our desires and obligations? Yet another said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Another seemingly reasonable request. This request even harkens back to the great prophets Elijah and Elisha that we had read for us this morning. You can read about their lives in the books of First and Second Kings, but before following his teacher, Elijah, Elisha, uh, he was called while plowing a field in Second Kings. And he says, first, let me kiss my mother and father, and then I will follow you. Elijah allowed him to do this. But Jesus comes back with a demand that's even stricter. And Jesus says to this person, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Now you may, like me, need some help understanding why looking back while plowing a field isn't a great idea. This is what N.T. Wright has to say about it. He says, many today don't work the land, that's me, and perhaps don't appreciate what happens if you're trying to plow a straight furrow and then look back to see how you did. Even if what you see when you're looking back is a straight line, the act of looking back will mean that the next bit will become crooked. You've got to concentrate on the next line. If you're on a journey, the map that you need is the one that tells you what is coming up next not the one for the road that you've already traveled. So Jesus, in this third interaction, is calling this person to stop looking back and start looking at him. If you've ever hung out at Palmer Square Park, a little north of Armitage between Sacramento and Kedzie, it's a great little park. And if you've ever gone there in the summer, specifically on Tuesday nights, there's like a little... Circus. I don't really know what it is entirely. It's like a circus. But they, one of the things they do there is this thing called slacklining, and you tie a you tie a piece of fabric that's about two or three inches wide, and you tie it in between two trees. Um, and the goal is just to walk back and forth on this on this piece of fabric. And there's a trick to slacklining. Um, it looks really really hard, but the trick is that you have to look while you're walking at something that is not moving in front of you. As you wobble and move and sway, the important thing is to look at something that isn't moving. And nothing would ruin your time slacklining more than trying to look behind you. So the key is having your eyes fixed ahead of you on something that isn't moving. And as you bounce and wobble and fumble across that little line, that little piece of fabric, you have to keep looking ahead at something that's not moving. What Jesus is asking this individual to do is fairly simple. It's just to keep looking forward and to stop looking back. I can almost picture this person looking at their family and friends behind them and saying, can I just go, can I go back there for a little while before I come follow you? Can I go say goodbye? Can I go spend some time with them? Weighing the risks of whether or not it was really worth it to follow Jesus. Jesus is asking us to not look back but to look ahead at him. The really good news of the gospel is that when we look at Jesus, we aren't looking at a God who's far from us. We aren't looking at a God who is looking down at us, really removed from us. Nor are we looking at a God who's disappointed or frustrated in us. We're focusing in on a God who, the moment we decide to follow him, looks at us and says the same thing he said to Jesus, which is, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. If we spend our days and our lives focusing on anyone or anything else, they will not be able to hold that weight on which we place them. This was St. Ignatius of Loyola's view of indifference, that being indifferent to the things of this world Meaning letting the things of this world fall to the wayside compared to our relationship with God is rooted in knowing how beloved we are by him. As long as we feel like orphans in this world, meaning as long as we feel like people who have to take care of ourselves, both emotionally, physically, financially, in every single way, as long as we think we have to do everything for ourselves, We will never be able to be indifferent to things in this world. We need to be rooted in the love of the Father. There's a lot of ways to do this. And all of them are kind of simple. Things like coming to church, reading scripture, spending time with other believers, spending time meditating, spending time in prayer, those little things that reorient us to how God views us. The more we step into those things, the more we know how beloved we are by the Father, the more we can be indifferent to the other things in this world. So three interactions we see this morning, three responses, indifference to everything but the call of Jesus, indifference to comfort and security, Indifference to family ties and relationships. And finally, indifference to our wants and desires. One of the fascinating things about this story is that we don't learn anything about any of these three people. We don't know if they're men or women. We don't know if they're rich or poor. We don't know if they are young or old. We simply don't know. And so what it allows us to do is put ourselves in their shoes. Luke was there. Luke knows exactly who was talking to Jesus, but he decided not to describe them. He decided not to put descriptions of them in Scripture. And so it allows us to sit and say, which of these three interactions do we identify with? Do we make big promises to God saying, I'll follow you wherever you go, only to choose the safe and comfortable choice over and over again? Or maybe we want to follow Jesus, but the ties of our family and our friends make us say, first let me do that. First let me do this. Or maybe you're like the last individual, constantly wanting to look back at a former life behind you. Thinking, let me just go spend a little bit more time working on all this, and then I'll get to all that Jesus stuff. Indifference is a loaded word. Its root is from the Latin "indifferentia," meaning being neither good nor bad. And as we've talked about indifference this morning, you may still be wondering why I picked a word that sounds at best neutral and at worst pretty negative. Jesus' call to indifference, indifference towards security, family ties, affections, it's not a proclamation that any of these things are wicked or evil. It's not a condemnation of owning a home or being with your dying parents, or saying goodbye to your friends, Jesus' point is that compared to following him with our lives, we have to be indifferent to all of these things. That whether you are in a beautiful home or have no home at all, that doesn't affect your ability to follow Jesus. That whether you are healthy or sick, it doesn't affect your ability to follow Jesus. We all have this call to indifference, and that's what we see in these three interactions. The analogy of following Jesus is helpful in part because you can only really follow one thing at a time. Life isn't like Twitter or Instagram. We can't really follow hundreds of people, hundreds of places, hundreds of things. There are a lot of different things in life, as you know, that are demanding your attention. And what Jesus is asking for us to do this morning is to follow him and be a little more indifferent to all those other things. In the words of the classic wedding vows, better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. What indifference looks like as a Christian virtue is that whether things are better or worse, whether we are richer or poorer, whether we are in sickness or in health, that we would be following Jesus. And maybe the one the side of those things that seems a little worse might actually be better for our relationship in following Jesus. So the vows we take in a marriage ceremony are about, about being indifferent to the circumstances that come as opposed to your love for your spouse. What Jesus is asking us for this morning is a similar indifference. One of the key documents that has been used throughout our tradition's history is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a big, big question-and-answer booklet, essentially. It was written in the 1600s to help kids and those who are new to the faith to learn about what it meant to follow a Christian life, to follow Jesus. It's put in question-and-answer format, the whole thing. And the first question is definitely the best one. Here's how it goes. It says, What is the chief end of man? And the response is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Developing the virtue of indifference isn't about neglecting your family, despising your work, ridding yourself of priorities. It's rather about developing a sense of priority. Think again of those steeplechase racers. They know what their goal is. They can see it the whole time. In this same way, the Christian virtue of indifference is a question of eschatology, meaning it's a question of our end as humans. What is our ultimate end and purpose? Our ultimate end and purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And indifference is about thinking a little bit less about all those other things and thinking a little bit more about that ultimate end and goal. Jesus says in John 10.10 that he came that we may have life and have it to the full. And part of the mystery of this Christian life is that indifference to all the good things that God has created and that God has given us and focus on the one who created them is what will make us content, it's what will make us joyful, and it's what will give us life to the full. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you still speak to us today. Thank you that you sent your son to become like us so that we could follow him. Thank you that, uh, that as Dan said this morning, um, we, we don't confess because we need to be forgiven, but because we are forgiven. And so, Father, I pray that we would know even deeper this morning how loved we are by you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.